Welcome everybody to Ness and Dorma, your chat about 80s and 90s football. I am Lee Calvert. I will be hosting, well not hosting, we're all hosting it really, but I'm here doing the first bit of talking. And joining me, our football writing zone, Mr. Rob Smythe. Hello, Rob. Hello. And also with us is the author of many football books, including his latest, which is the title, The Story of the First Division. It's Mr. Scott Murray. Hello there, Lee. Hello. Just to point out, Scott, as well as to confirm your book is available for Christmas, if anybody wants to download it on an e-reader or... (laughs) If you've got Amazon Prime, you can probably still squeeze under the barrier, can't you? Yeah, providing the post office is still a thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, Amazon Prime not going near the post office. They've, they've outsourced <laughs> right. that one. Um, hey, I tell you what, it's like a Guardian, Guardian Unlimited Sport reunion party around here, isn't it? Except- yeah, all we need, <clears throat> all we need to be in that crappy little office they used to be in before, uh, before they moved twice. Yeah. Except for uh, me, I wasn't actually at Guardian Limited. I was used to email in <laughs> when I should have been working. But yeah, I was still. I still like to think I'm part of it, part of it in a way. <laughs> was that before you moved to Guardian Towers in Farringdon and all that back in the day? Yeah, Scott will know more about this because I was I was a late kind of ah. JCL. But yeah, they were they were in a little office for a while. It was great actually, kind of rickety, rickety <laughs> old lift and everything. Yeah, good old school sort of newspaper lift <laughs> before before we were allowed into the main building. <laughs> <laughs> when fo- when online sports journalism was still some- had something of the outsider about it, no no more. Um, coming up on this episode, we're going to take a long, hard look at the Liverpool Spice Boys period. We'll also name another journeyman of the week, and we'll pick some favourite Christmas period matches if we get time to do so at the end. Um, if you want to get in touch with the pod, you can get in touch at Nessundorma Pod on Twitter. There's also a website, nessundormapod.com, where you can find a contact form. If you want to get in touch with us, let us know what you think. Thanks, everybody who's subscribed so far. We're available on Acast and on iTunes, where you're probably listening right now. But all your favourite uh, pod listening programme or app, if you want to put us in there as well. Thanks for everyone who's bearing with us with some slight sound things we try and iron out at the beginning of these first few episodes. Uh, last week, we had quite a strange amount of noise coming from Rock Bagchi's chair, so I apologise for that. <laughs> so uh, It was creaking quite a bit, and um, we were kind of too far into the record before I could sort it out. So for those of you who are listening, and I know there are people listening, and the numbers are growing, thanks very much for sticking with us while we sort this out. Uh, so there you go. So let's start with this week, before we get into Spice, but let's talk about our journeyman of the week, shall we? Now, the nomination this week is Mr. Neil Redfern, now, if you remember from a couple of episodes ago, if you were there then, I came up with this little uh, calculation to find out how much of a journeyman <laughs> someone was, which is, and I'll remind you what it is, if you take the number of clubs that he's had and divide it by how long his top flight career was, you get a percentage of journeyman. So Neil Redfern had 14 clubs in 20 years, which means he's 70% journeyman. <laughs> I've not included in that some of his non-league stuff towards the end. He played for about five clubs right near the end, but it was I'm not counting non-league. So he's a 70% journeyman, Neil Redfern. In many ways, I see Neil Redfern as sort of the quintessential journeyman because one, mm. he's a midfielder, and somehow journeymen always should be midfielders in my mind. Also, he tended to operate generally at the subprime level of football. <laughs> Even when he was in the top division, he was kind of still subprime, wasn't he? Yeah, well, the thing is, to me, he kind of um, always embodied that gap between the top flight and the second tier because I think the late 
90s. Now, by then, he was quite old, to be fair. But So he played for Barnsley for ages. They were yeah. relegated. They went up in 97, relegated in 98. Signed by Charlton, he'd just been promoted, relegated in 99. Signed by Bradford, he'd just been promoted. <laughs> and they didn't get relegated, but they did sell him in 2000. So I kind of always thought it was just on that kind of mezzanine level between one player and another. Yeah. Not quite not quite good enough for the Premier League, far too good for the Championship. He's also a Yorkshireman. And somehow that seems more journeyman to me as well. A journeyman should be a Yorkshire midfielder in some way. Hey, yes. Yeah, speaking, yeah. speaking of yeah, uh, yeah, York, some Yorkshire, some awful trivia found out against about uh, Neil Redfern. He was playing for Lincoln versus Bradford when the fire started in oh, 1985. Yeah. Didn't know Crikey. that. That's this a, is the thing with journeyman. If you actually dig deep, there's so many little details about it because obviously... They've been to every club, every postal district in the country. But I, I guess you remember him for that um, that famous penalty against Sheffield Wednesday. Well, yes, a much better piece of trivia about Neil Redfern, <laughs> from my point of view, is that he only spent a season at Oldham, but became an Oldham legend because he scored the penalty, which won us the game against Sheffield Wednesday, which meant we were promoted as champions in 1991. Um, was, a lot, was it like an injury time? It was. We'd been 2-0 down in that game. And we dragged it back, and then we got a a stoppage time penalty, which Neil Redfern slotted in. The video is on YouTube. It's one of the best videos you will ever see. It's (laughs) it's full of people running on in snow-washed jeans and shell suit tops in pure excitement of what's just happened. But again, the great thing about that is, is, you know, if you don't know the story, we'll probably talk about this at some point, is that West Ham had paraded the trophy round and everything. Oh, Oh, yeah, we were 2-0 down and thought, oh, that's, you know, there was no Twitter then or live feeds or anything. It was like, well... Probably somebody on the phone going, oh, they're 2-0 down, they fucking had it now sort of thing. And So they literally put all the ribbons on the, the league trophy and everything and were parading it around and had to quickly wind back and dismantle. Imagine if there was Twitter was... around now and it was all on, that was all on the phone and how much shame they'd be. Who was that team in Germany who was celebrating the title when Bayern Munich scored in about 148th minute or something to steal it off them? <laughs> I forget who it was. It was one of those years when Bayern... But yeah, I bet there, must, I bet there are so many stories like because people don't like to talk about it, you know, never count the chickens, bollocks. I bet they do half the time. <laughs> like, I've always wanted to know whether Arsenal were alleged to have worn Nike vests when they would, you know, when they were beaten at Old Trafford and they would have gone 50 games unbeaten. They were supposed to oh, have yeah, worn yeah, Nike yeah, vests, yeah, yeah. 50 not out, just done it or something. Now, they've always denied it. Who knows? I don't know. But I bet, like, the stuff like the West Ham, I bet that happens all the time. Just a quick one, actually, because people like me who support teams who haven't been in the second year of my lifetime, get quite snobby about when you're promoted, you think, well, who cares if you win the league? You know, you've been promoted, that's all that counts. Mm. But then I watched that Oldham video and it kind of gave me a sense of just how enormous a thing it was to go up as champions. Yeah. I guess that was the case for you. And I think, yeah, because what you've got to remember is we hadn't won a fucking thing. So there's something about, and actually <laughs> when you true. look at the trophies we've won, it's one of the few trophies we've ever won. So actually it wasn't just, so yeah, one, I think you do want to go up as winners anyway. And anybody says, you'll take it if it's not that, but that's what you'd want. And it's the fact that it is something in the cabinet of which we don't have many, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But Neil Redford, what I love about Neil Redford, you mentioned he went to Charlton then, but he, only, he spent a year in Charlton, but also the, the got relegated, but it's also because apparently his family couldn't settle in London, which is a magnificently northern thing as well, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I quite admire them for that, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, I got some experience of that, yeah. but it's uh... <laughs> Yeah, so that's Neil Redfern. So just to give his full list of clubs, in case you're wondering, he started in 1982, Neil Redfern, and he retired. He retired from top flight football, the actual league football in 2006, and he managed to do... Uh, Bolton Wanderers, where he started, Lincoln City, Doncaster, Crystal Palace, Watford, Oldham Athletic, and into the 90s was Barnsley, which is, he had his longest stay at Barnsley, 292 games. 
Charlton Athletic, Bradford City, Wigan Athletic, Halifax Town, Boston United, Rochdale, and then finished at Scarborough. And for those of you who are interested after that, he had some non-league stuff. Bradford Park Avenue, Stocksbridge Park Steels, Frickley Athletic, Bridlington Town, Emley, and then did some time at Salford City in 2008, which of course is now famous for being owned by Neville, the Nevilles and who else? Paul Scholes and everything. Yeah, <clears throat> gigs and everyone. Yeah, so there we, you go, Neil Redfern. Sorry, Scott. Redfern, Redfern was kind of mainly remembered for his time at Barnsley, mm. I think, isn't he? Probably yeah. by most people, just because it was Premier League stuff. We're going to go on to talk about the Spice Boys. I mean, Redfern had a... It was He was kind of one of the players that sort of put that era to an end, really, because he was part of the team. He was part of the Barnsley team that won at Anfield All in right. the league. And it was kind of everyone was... That was the point at which everyone was <laughs> beginning to think, ah, hold on, this Roy Evans thing... <laughs> this Roy Evans thing might not be going so well. And then he was kind of in the middle of everything. There was a great game um, later that season at Oakwell, which Liverpool won 3-2. But, but Barnsley ended up with eight men on the pitch. And, and Redfern scored twice. Um, I think at one point a punter came on to try and you know, separate the ref's head from his shoulder. <laughs> it, it was kind of stopped by this marvellous sort of like flying tackle by Jan uh, Agafjortov. Um, it was just one of those afternoons where everything got out of hand. And, it, and, it, but, and, and but then again, you know, Ryben's Liverpool needed a last minute winner to get past this, you know, this battling eight man, eight man side that everyone had like sort of a, had fingered for relegation at the start of the season anyway. So yeah, he had his he had his story to tell in the in the wider picture that we're that we're going on to. I know, I know we're all grown ups in theory, but is there anything better than watching a football match where, as you put it, things got a bit out of hand? It's just <laughs> one of the greatest moments of my writing career was doing the Guardian minute by minute for Holland Portugal in the 2006 World Cup. Oh, right. When I think four players were sent <laughs> yeah. off. Uh, really God knows how many were booked. It was just. Wonderful. It's one of the it greatest. Just, it's one of the most disingenuous just, things that a commentator ever says, isn't it? And nobody wants to see this. Yes, we would. Yeah, yeah, are you mad? Do. This is brilliant. Yes. Like, what, anyone think ago, of the kids? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, when Spurs lost to Chelsea, they they went up in my estimation considerably a couple of years ago. Yeah. It'll never get boring. So yeah, so I'd, well, fair point, Scott. That one thing we can say that Neil Redfern did is bring an end to the Spice Boys period. You never know. Let the word go forth from here. That's the truth. <laughs> now, that he ended the Spice Boys. So yeah, while we are, so that's Neil Redfern, our journeyman of the week to answer the list. Um, have you got any memories of Neil Redfern out there? Favorite memories? Maybe you're a Barnsley fan. You can let us know <laughs> at Ness and Dorma Pod. You can let us know on Twitter. Let's talk about the Spice Boys then, shall we? Now, just for clarity, from my point of view, a question to start with, right? When did this era really start? Was it after Don Hutchison left? Because, <laughs> I mean, well, what, what's that Don quote Hutch from Roy, Roy Evans? John Hutchison got caught in the tabloids holding a Budweiser label over his gentleman's region, didn't he? And Roy Evans' quote was, if, Hutch, if Hutchinson is flashing his cock again, that's out of order. <laughs> and he had four for it because a year earlier he spotted some female students video of their graduation 
and unzipped his flies and shouted, zoom in on this at them. Now, the thing is, you know, I can remember at the time when this happened, and you have that kind of, because I was a young man at the time, and you have that kind of hijinks thing. And looking back at it now, you think, you are basically a sex criminal, Don Hutchison. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's horrible when you look like back a, on these things, isn't it? At the time, it seemed all fun and games like a Porky's film. <laughs> now, now you just think, you're hardly better than Harvey Weinstein. I know, it's absolutely awful, isn't it? But Hutchison obviously went off to West Ham, and, and that, that was all that. So, did it, so when did it start, then, the Spice Boys thing? <laughs> is that a tough one? Well, I mean, yeah, it kind of is because it was it was sort of um, it was kind of retrospectively um, uh, added the name, ah, right. wasn't it? It, it was. Yes. I it was think Rob. I think Rob might know a little bit more about that. It was it was christened by Neil Harmon, who I think wrote for the Daily Mail, uh, right. and it, it was around March '97. Now, by then, the Spice Boys era, as we know it, was fading. Um, so the actual label was retrospectively applied. I, I still think there was a kind of sense of them doing things that people didn't entirely approve of. But um, I don't know. I, I don't think there was one moment because I think it it was contingent on the, the development of certain players like Fowler and McManaman, even though they were probably harshly labeled. But then also the change in culture, you know, like Loaded magazine, things like that. Mm. So I think it kind of happened around 94, 95. Well, um, and also... Yeah, that's what I think of it. I think it's like confusing, or it's confused a little bit more by the fact that Liverpool had quite a booze culture in the 1980s anyway. Um, and, you know, and so did Manchester United. But the minute that you flip around success and failure, then the Absolutely. booze culture gets... So the booze culture at United was a huge thing in the 80s, apparently. It was no different at Anfield. Then, oh, can I just can I quickly interrupt just to say, in Tony Evans' book about the 83-84 season, there's a wonderful story about, I think they went to Israel a few days before the European Cup final against Roma, and they basically ended up having a brawl with each other. Like, so <laughs> I think someone, yeah, I forget the details, but someone that they were going, got absolutely pongoed, and someone took a piss under a table, and it something, I forget the details, I think it went wrong, and he accidentally put it all over someone's trousers or something, and next thing you know, they're having a fight, basically. And a few days later, of course, they turn up in Rome with the European Cup brilliantly. But you're right, it's kind of the, the whole prism of success and failure, and it was flipped on its head in the 90s because while United didn't go out as much as Liverpool, they still did plenty of things that would have been kind of properly frowned upon had it been Liverpool doing it. I love the idea that somebody pissing on the table can go wrong by weeing on somebody <laughs> that it was going well, actually, this is It recurring... was all going so well until you weed on somebody, you know. This is a recurring theme as well, because talking of Neil Redford, there's that great book which I still haven't read. I've got it in my bookcase uh, that the German goalkeeper did about his season at Barnsley and isn't there a bit when he talks about when they were in a pub beer garden or something or not even a beer garden they weren't even bothering to go to the toilet they were just going under the table <laughs> lovely so yeah anyway sorry so what so oh, well, the, the Liverpool situation then the soonest era if you call it an era the soonest period had come to an end in what year I can't remember now uh, 94. 94. Er, and then Evans, early 94. Evans was yeah. appointed as, I suppose, the last of the last ever of the boot room appointments when you look back, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a lot of talk at the time that Alan Hansen was going was gonna to sort of leave the match of the day sofa and, uh, and take over. But it was always, it was always most likely going to be, going to be Evans. Um, and I wonder whether, like, his, I've been thinking about this and wondering whether his hands were a wee bit tied from the start. I mean, I think he was always going to play an attacking game. But there's something about the cycle of, of, like, of Liverpool as a club. They're not a, 
they're not a philosophically consistent club. So if you look at so if you look at say when Shankly took over, um, and probably for the best part of a quarter of a century, they played a similar game. They were probably never the most entertaining team in the league, but they really knew how to get the job done. You know, in, increasingly so in terms of trophies. Um, you know, once Paisley took over and blah blah blah, and then Dalgleish took over, um, became you know, opened things up, became more entertaining. That was a sort of watchword. Soonest pulled it back. And if you if if you sort of look further on, it was the same. You know, you have then you have Julia and Benitez, you know, keeping things tight at the back, and then, um, you know, now you've got Hodgson and then Klopp. So it it, it seems to Hodgson. go Hodgson. <laughs> yeah. Oh God, how could I forget Hodgson? But let's forget Hodgson. <laughs> Having said that, blanket um, defending forever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, but but you know, for, for the best part of fifty, sixty years, Liverpool have sort of had this sort of ebb and flow about what they want to do and how they want to be perceived and what sort of football they want to serve up. It's not been consistent. I can remember people and, saying, and I think Evans at the time. You know, it was kind of it was that time to suddenly try and play some nice football again after maybe five years of four or five years of pretty bad stuff under Sunis and the tail end of of Dalgleish. I'll come on to the who were the people you know who were the Spice Wars in a minute, but Rob, I can remember people at the time, you know, saying things like, "Oh, Liverpool play much better football than Man United." Those kind of things uh, yeah. are being said, weren't they? Was that was that yeah. fair? Were they, did they play? Oh. You know, I remember it being quite a nice ticky tacker type thing, but. Was that fair enough? I think, I think it was, and also I think it was different. Yeah, I think Newcastle were known as the entertainers, but I think Liverpool were the most continental team. They were, as you say, playing what is now known as tick attack. They were very kind of patient, possession orientated. They weren't quite as dynamic, apart from through Fowler and Collymore. I, I thought they were probably the best team to watch in terms of just yeah, just kind of quality of possession really and it all went through McManaman. and they, they I think they did play better than United in that period because from about 94 to 97 even though United won two titles and they had that amazing period when Cantona won and the double a lot of their success was down to a really really good defence and, and Schmeichel which of course was one of the big differences between the teams mm. so yeah I think it's probably fair I think I mean it depends what you like really a lot of people say Newcastle played the best football but I just I just think it was not necessarily better just two different ways of doing it they probably look more like a team looks now, Liverpool, you think about it, don't they? In the way they play yeah. football. And That's you know, the thing. They, they, they were probably hipsterish before that was a thing. Yeah, do you know, and this isn't a view you should suggest in last orders in Liverpool, but I think, I genuinely think they helped United <laughs> win the treble because Ferguson was obsessed with them. Ferguson in those days wasn't really a tactician, but he was so obsessed with McManaman, he tried a million different tactics against them. He played one game, he played Jordi Cruyff at left wing back. Um, there was like he played without wingers. He played he almost man marked which he never did. He played a four one three two and all kinds of things. And I think that gave him practice and kind of got him kind of going tactically for for Europe, which he then became obsessed with kind of various ways of playing away in Europe. Um, so yeah, well, whether it actually directly helped them win the treble, I don't know. But I think it was good preparation for Ferguson, and and it was a challenge he could never really really solve, even though United you know, had some good wins over them. It was usually after being outplayed. I remember when people started man-marking McManaman. I remember an interview with him around that period of time. I think, is it Martin O'Neill put Pontus Carmark on him to, to, <laughs> to man-mark him for a game? 
and it was and it had just started happening. And Matt McManaman saying it is the straight. Never mind the tactics and the difficulty. He said it's just the strangest thing to have a man following you round. I'm surprised it doesn't happen. I'm surprised it doesn't happen more. Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd like it must be horrible unless you're. It depends on the type of player as well, you know. Like if if they're really quick or really strong, then maybe it's harder. But someone like, like for example, Canton, I didn't always respond that well as being man marked in Europe. Um, I wouldn't have thought McManaman, although I don't know actually. I can't remember any specific examples. I don't know, but I I, I would do it more personally. Certainly in those days. So we mentioned McManaman. So when when people talk about the Spice Boys and that team, Scott. In my mind, mm. it's David James was a big part of it, obviously the goalkeeper. There was Redknapp, McManaman, McAteer, Fowler, mm. mm-hmm. Collymore. Was he kind of seen as like core spice boy or Yeah, absolutely. I mean I Bill can... Babb, was he part of it? Well, you, you see yeah, this is he... exactly what I was just about to say that for me, it, um the Spice Boys most people would talk about Fowler McManaman. Collymore, I guess. Mm. For me, I always just go straight to Phil Babb and, <laughs> and, and straight to, um, you know, Neil Ruddock and John, to a lesser extent, John Scales, who I sort of feel, you know, who had this sort of like slightly more mature vibe coming off him. So, I'd, <laughs> so I'm, I'm sort of loath to drag him into it, although he, he wasn't great. Um, but, but Babb and Ruddock, because the Spice Boys, the, the, the real... If you were going to boil them down, tincture of Spice Boy <laughs> would be um, to, you know, splash over with your Armani suit. Um, <laughs> would be that defence. It was the, it, you know, to horribly mix metaphors and things out, but it was the Achilles heel. It, it was ultimately what that team was all about. So remind people who the defence was then. <laughs> I don't want to remember it. <laughs> <laughs> so David James in goal. Phil yeah. Bab. And David right, David, right You know, David James so often sitting like having conceded some ludicrous goal with a huge <laughs> with a huge grin plastered all over his coupe. <laughs> and just and you and you could tell everyone in the stadium were just going, for fuck's sake, stop smiling. It's not it's not funny. You've just like you know, you've just waved your hands under a simple cross, floated over. For someone to tap you say in. That, you say the defence, but Stiginger Bjornaby was never classed as a spice boy, was he? No, no. <laughs> he must <laughs> stay out of it. Well, yeah. It's a it's a weird thing, though. That uh, I don't know. I I kind of I've I've sort of in my mind I've separated the fact that they were out sort of boozing and carousing. Um, that side of the spice boy thing never really interested me, and for some reason I've just got spice boys. It's there. I guess what they did off the pitch is a great metaphor for the way they sort of the sort of free form, freestyle way they acted on it, and I, and I've somehow got the ideas conflated in my head, and it doesn't quite make any sense. So I'm, I apologise for everything I'm going to say, I'm going to say in this entire podcast, but it <laughs> but it's but it's not quite that coherent. Yeah, I think I, I don't know. I think the Space Boys are many things to different people. And, yeah, I... it, 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 and some people will concentrate on the white suits and the pissing around at China White or whatever, and you know catching uh, planes down so they can be in there before the, you know, before the dancing girls. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, but for me, it's just this ludicrous. I mean, I mean, I th- you you were asking a minute ago um, when you think this started, and I actually think it started when Phil Bab came on at Old Trafford, <laughs> and I think it was it, it was nil nil, and he came on for his debut, and within what was it two hundred seconds we were two. <laughs> two nil down. <laughs> it's like, it, and I, you can I literally even... see the paradigm shift happening in yeah. those two hundred seconds. And the weird thing is that I'm not sure. I, uh, I I might be misremembering that match. It might not have even been his fault. I think John Scales might have let in Kanchelskis, um for the opening goal. Hmm. But it, it, the, the, that rings a bell. But. Um, but it was more the symbolic thing. It was the fact that Bab was on as this sort of... He was kind of the final piece in this uh, this defensive jigsaw that, that, that Roy Evans was building, this new three-man thing that was very continental. And, you know, Argentina had won the World Cup like this. And it was, you know, no one in England had really tried it. And it was very sophisticated. And <laughs> within 200 seconds... People were going, um, do we want to do this? <laughs> and why is David James smiling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the so, thing, you mentioned Roy Evans there about he went to this three. Was he was he one of the first people to move to this kind of three at the back wing backs thing? I think so. By the mid-90s, there were a lot, almost there half was a lot the teams of it, were playing it. Yeah, yeah. But I think Evans did it, as Scott said, a year earlier. So he would have been one of the first. I'm trying to remember. I think Hoddle might have done it. He played himself at sweeper. At Chelsea, um, but certainly, yeah, he would have been Liverpool would have been the most famous example, I would say, in the Premier League in that era because United and Newcastle both played back fours, as did Blackburn when they won the league. And the thing that's often leveled at Roy Evans is well, one, he seems to be quite ahead of the curve with that, so suggests he was a decent coach. Is that fair, or is that you know, well, I, I've I, it's difficult because people say he gave. The, the players too much slack and there's probably an element of that. Mm. But you look at the other way and I would say Fowler, McManaman and Redknapp who were the key players in that team all played the best and or most progressive football in their careers under him. I know McManaman played, probably played better around Madrid, but he played in a different more restrained role and certainly he was so influential at Liverpool. You think, well, hang on a minute, he can't, he can't be doing that much wrong if they're all playing the best football in their careers. The key, the three key players. So it's difficult, isn't it? There's two sides to every argument. Collie Ball will tell you and John Barnes as well that there was no discipline and that's probably true as he well. But you know, you mates, wasn't it? That was always the thing that's leveled. Yeah, there's things. a good story Collymore talks about when um, they were coming out for training and Robbie Fowler got Evans in a headlock and started scrubbing his hair. And Collymore said, I couldn't help but wonder what would happen if Gary Neville did that to Sir Alex Ferguson. <laughs> um, but then you go, you know, it's difficult, isn't it? Because the type of characters they had, I'm not sure they would have responded to that much discipline. I, I, we'll never know. No, but I mean, what you're saying, Scott, because one of the questions I've got kind of written down to consider is, you know, did they really ruin their chances with this extracurricular stuff, which was stuff like modelling, wasn't it, and being out and and, mm. and all of that kind of stuff? But your point, Scott, seems to be, to come back to your point before, that actually, no, they ruined their chances by having a fucking terrible defence, basically. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, I, I guess, you know, there'll be uh, sports scientists and nutritionists out there that, 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 that might make a small leap between going out boozing you know, all this thing. I think it was Ruddock's catchphrase, win, draw, or lose, first to the bar for yeah. booze. Yeah, they used to hang around a pound coin, didn't they, on the pitch, and whoever was left with it at the final whistle got the first round in. <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, that, the, the weird thing is that's that almost sounds like some sort of weird trick that like Guardiola would make his side do, <laughs> just just to get everyone moving around in intricate, uh, you know, intricate lines, but um, but probably not with the booze at the end. <laughs> Yeah, it was a strange thing. I mean, the, the thing about Evans is he did. Uh, I mean, I think he was obviously a really good coach um, because that Liverpool side uh, won. Well, his Liverpool side won nothing apart from a League Cup, and you know, certainly threw away one league. Probably should have won an FA Cup because the sort of mood, even though United had won that 96, Rob might disagree with this, but even though United had won the 96 league, I remember the sort of mood music going into that cup final Mm. was that, um, you know, this was going to be Liverpool's time to put down a marker and, you know, it'll be, they'll win the league next season and blah, blah, blah. United were scared, United were scared of them um, because they've been absolutely slaughtered at Anfield in December. Ferguson actually had like a meeting. He wanted to go three at the back on Man Mark with Manaman. And everyone thought it'd be a classic. And it, what happened, the Roy Keane gave probably the second greatest performance of his career and just turned it into mm. a miserable final for everyone. Um, <laughs> it was a horrible But no, I agree. I think, game, I think United, were, United were really cautious going into that game, definitely. Because Ferguson does that thing he does where he's he's always wise... He's he's always wise after the event, but but says that he was he was wise at the time. If you know what I mean, because he says, "Is it his quote?" He says, "Oh, as soon as I saw him in those, let's deal with the white suit, shall we?" As soon as I saw him in those <laughs> white suits, I knew the game was lost. And I thought, I don't think well, that's true. I I, I, I honestly, I, he may have said that, but I'm not sure. But I know that um, someone said that in the dressing room, he, he made a point of saying David James would probably be waving to Giorgio Armani, you know, get crosses <laughs> in. Um, I quite like apparently Andy Cole went up to them on the pitch, you know, when they do the walk around and just said, what the fuck are you boys wearing? <laughs> um, I mean, R- Robbie Fowler's on record now, isn't he? Sort of saying that, yeah, we wore him. If we'd won, nobody would ever mention them again. Which you I know, think applies to the whole lifestyle, really. Yes, that goes back to that point, doesn't it? If they were successful, nobody would have given a shit where they were drinking. I would argue, I agree with Scott, they had a great chance to win the league in 96 when they blew it a bit. But apart from that, what were they supposed to win, you know? If you actually look at the teams, the the contrast with United in particular, like United had Roy Keane and Peter Schmeichel for a start. Mm. Liverpool had David James and a fading John Barnes. I know Liverpool had brilliant players like Fowler and McManaman, but they just weren't quite as good. The, the second kind of backup players as well, United had people like Gary Neville. They were just better. Liverpool could have won it in 97. I would agree with that. I think they cocked mm. it up. That infamous game at home to Coventry when they slaughtered them and lost 2-1. And James threw at least one in and might have been two. But apart from that, I would argue they almost had the best of both worlds. You know, they've got to live like playboys and they still got to play amazing football and kind of fulfill their potential. Now, their potential wasn't, we're not talking about, I don't know, like for want of a better example, we're not talking about the Busby Babes or anything in terms of lost potential. Yeah, they were just true. a bloody good, entertaining team. Um, I, mean, I mean, it's a strange, a strange era of English football in that sense because you could argue that. Manchester United, once that first flush of winning league titles, the first couple of league titles under Ferguson, um, they kept winning titles. They you know, won the, their second double in 96, another title in 97. But the teams of that era that everyone remembers um, is Newcastle and, the, and Liverpool's Spice Boys, which which I think is like a sort of, it's a generational thing. I'm not sure if that'll happen. I wonder if, because it, it could be that a similar fate's about to befall Spurs at the moment after 
Leicester, Chelsea, and now Guardiola City, that they'll have this great team that never won anything. Possibly, you know, we don't we don't know yet. But I wonder whether, like, the generation of fans now will remember them as fondly as maybe an older generation will remember um, the Spice Boys, Keegan's Entertainers. And I think part of that, you know, you also, this is also when, like, Matthew Letizia was, was roaming the earth. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> it's, it's kind of that old, slightly older school sense of, well, you don't necessarily need to win anything um, to achieve some form of greatness. It's it, it, it's not the only way you can achieve greatness in football and that you can be remembered. And, of course, both those teams you mentioned have the kind of trophy that is the greatest Premier League game. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Which is kind of their, their thing, isn't it? And, you know, rightly so. It's, yeah. I, it always fascinates me that the second game was 4-3 and no one ever really talks about it at all, do they? It just wasn't remotely comparable to the first one. Well, what I mean, was it funny was... was that 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 second game was Liverpool were due to play Newcastle the day Princess Diana died. Oh, uh, yeah. is that why it was put back? Yeah, because uh, I know that that was no, be no, the that's a year game. after. Yeah, because that was a bit of the third the game. Second... Was it? That was it. The, because everyone was talking about a third, four, three in a row. The only reason and I remember then... is because I was working in a factory that day, and I, I mean, <laughs> mate, we've been on the piss that before. My mate said, "Get up, we've got to go to work." And we were meant to be finishing at 11 o'clock and go in the pub to watch the football. And he said, get up, Princess Diana's dead. I said, yeah, fuck off, because I thought you were trying to get me up. And, he said, <laughs> and then he said, no, honestly, and we were all stuck, oh, God, that's really bad. And we went to work, and we were, like, painting stuff, because I was painting the factory. And there was all this classical music on, and out of respect, and stuff. Like, oh, God, it's bad, isn't it? What a shame for our kids. And then it came on. The Premier League has announced that all today's fixtures will be cancelled. And we were like, <laughs> what? She's fuck all to do with the football. For God's sake. That's that's basically how long the sympathy lasted was until that announcement of the football had been finished. Because we were looking forward to another 4-3. But yeah, as you said, the second one wasn't as good as the first one. Yeah, basically, Prince Diana's death wasn't <laughs> ruined your Sunday in the pub. Basically, yeah. yeah. Well, we had some sympathy until they... they yeah, because what's the point going to pub is to sit there with an hangover? <laughs> and talk to you, but you have to talk exactly. to each other. Terrible, yeah. But yeah, those, yeah. I mean, those games were absolutely spectacular, weren't they? What yeah, the it's, I've been trying to place... what There have been other games with as much drama, as much significance... I've been trying to place what exactly is it is about the four three. I don't, I don't really know. Maybe it's just some games just capture a mood, you know. Um, obviously, there were some brilliant goals, last minute winner twists, but it's just it's so far ahead of every other game. I find that really interesting. And I think it's kind maybe of, it's, it's Anfield Anfield night game as well. There's that, and it's also that it's the it was it's seen as emblematic. That and the I'd love it if we beat them. It's kind of emblematic. Yeah, of, exactly. of, of because there's that great shot of Keegan hanging his head behind the advertising yeah. order, isn't there? Yeah. And stuff like that. I, I think there's something about that picture which summed up everything about Kevin Keegan's career, really. <laughs> That's true. And it's interesting, unlike sometimes games kind of and goals and whatever assume great significance over time, but this had it straight away. I remember Andy Gray almost was crying on commentary saying it's like a bit of privilege to be here and all that kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting. I, 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 yeah, th- I think it was definitely the first season of the Premier League it's, it, it, for me, it was the first Premier League season that felt like something different to the old yes. First Division. That's it, a great it, point. It, it, it suddenly felt more. It was it was overheated. Um, there was there was a lot of managerial, um, you know, that sort of that confection of ma- managers arguing with each other and 
Keegan losing it, as you say, over the slumped over the hoardings. Uh, you know, you had Ferguson. It was really when Ferguson's um, reputation for main games, you know, whatever you think of that, um, that that was really established then. And it was it was the fact that Newcastle were, you know, looking to win the league for the first time since the twenties. I, I mean, it sounds silly now that Liverpool are twenty seven years down the road, but in ninety six, it seemed like ages since Liverpool had won the league. It was only six yeah, years. Yeah, it's true. So it was. It, so it was kind of two clubs. I think that's one of the reasons why the sort of four or three ended up being. Um, bit being so popular, but it, it's kind of like that end scene um, in Reservoir Dogs or something with you know people pointing guns at each other, and you just know that no one's going to win this. And like you know, it's, yeah. it, 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 like sort of Man U is this uh, Mr. Pink figure <laughs> running off with the you, running off with the prize. Your point, Scott, about Liverpool having not won since nineteen ninety. I think there's something in that about how they're so harshly judged because I think there were people. Liverpool fans, maybe, and also maybe some of the traditional sporting media, which just and just expected that it wouldn't be long before they won again, because that's yeah. what Liverpool did. You know, even if they had a couple, they had a blip where it didn't quite go right. They would win again, and then I suppose you've then got to find a reason why a dynasty and an empire like Liverpool doesn't win the league again. So well, I always but... got the impression it's like, well, actually, it must be because they're all being total knobheads and they're all signing. And actually, there's nothing inevitable about winning again. It just could be it wasn't quite right because it's bloody hard to build a squad to consistently win a league. Well, and also they probably left their... Um, uh, I don't know if they left it too long. or Their uh, the rebuild after the tail end of Dalgleish in the, in the fiasco of the, the soonest years. Um, now, if they'd have ended up maybe peaking a year later... Um, and taken a you know and not faltered in 1997, or maybe nipped in in '95 when you know when Blackburn won it. Mm. I don't know, but the, but they just happened to catch United at the wrong time, and United were building and they were becoming a juggernaut. And yeah, I don't know. Again, this I've, I've not really thought of this before, but this it, you know modern day Spurs. There's there's a lot of parallels there and well, into, think, into just being at the wrong place at the wrong time and not doing much wrong as Rob says I think they, they were quite like modern or kind of late 2000s Arsenal in a way and this is so always top four but of course back then that didn't mean anything always top four playing great I think you're right they were judged by the standard of the 80s whereas if you judge them by the standard of the 2000s then they look a better team I think 97 was the one because United were they had a kind of come down from the double and the winning it with kids they were obsessed with Europe, really preoccupied with Europe when they got to the semi-finals of the European Cup. They, I think they won the league with 75 points. So it, like that was the year. Liverpool certainly could, maybe should have won it that year. 96, I don't agree. I think they were really close, but they weren't quite there. And by 98, it was fading and it was almost over. Well, that's what I mean. I think 96 was, yeah, they weren't too. But, you, you know, if they'd arrived on the scene maybe a year before... 95, yes. I don't know, would they have kept up with Blackburn and United? Possibly not. But but it was just the fact that Liverpool's um, best year... See, I think I, I think they were better in 95, 96 than they were in 96. I agree. Had they played it as they did in 95, 6, in 96, 97, yeah, I think yeah. they won it. I'll, I'll just get this out of the way because it wasn't going to be much at all. It was just, just a thing where I was flicking through some of the... Um, uh, 
games in the 95-96 season and to show you how, you know, younger listeners, how how tight, how, uh-huh. uh, if, if we have any. Yeah, um, younger how, listeners. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 38-year-olds. Yeah, how, um, how times change is that um, there's like a three-day period where Liverpool beat Man City 4-0 and then 6-0. And, you know, that's not going to happen again anytime soon. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I think they were accused of being unable to win ugly. And I think that was a problem up to a point. 96 Cup final being an example. But I think the bigger problem was that they would lose or they would draw pretty. So the Coventry game is a good example when they thrashed them and lost 2-1. There was a game away at Newcastle in, I think, November 95. And they played brilliantly. Played Newcastle off the pitch. Lost 2-1 after a last-minute mistake from James. And then all the games at Old Trafford. <laughs> I think the first five years of the Premier League, they were the better team at Old Trafford and they won none of them. Um, mm. And so I think that was a bigger problem than a failure to win ugly personally. They just weren't, they weren't ruthless. They didn't have a collective killer instinct, even though Fowler had it individu- individually. Um, and I mean, he was amazing. I think yeah, it's worth to have right Fowler he, for a bit, isn't it? <laughs> he complains in his book about being associated with Spice Boys, like two tiny words basically ruin the best fucking memories of my career. And he's right because he was uh, unbelievably good he's got over 30 goals every year but I'd argue the high point of his career was <clears throat> when he scored two in the first 4-3 win and that was a few days before his 21st birthday mm. um, I just I can't think of a footballer who ever has successfully embodied what it's like just to be young absolutely brilliant and not give a fuck about anything I just thought I thought it was amazing because what happened with Fowler he ended up going to Leeds didn't he yeah, was, but that, the crucial... was that after he got injured he got injured didn't Scott, he? yeah he got injured in 98 when... was that against Everton Yes, and I mean, Scott, you might know more where you do know more, but I always thought he was just never quite the same after that. And obviously, there were other factors. Michael Owen emerged, and so on, Julier. But I thought that injury just it took seems something like one out of, the, of him. Some of those players, they say some players only play for one club, don't they? And there's, and there's something about Fowler and Liverpool in that, I think. Yeah, well, I think there's uh, And him and Julier weren't exactly best mates, were they, Scott? <laughs> and when did Julier come in as joint manager? Um, yeah, after the World Cup in... In, after France won the World did Cup, and last, they were in. Did that last a full season, or did it end before one full no, season? Two or three months, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was I remember, I remember the front cover of when Saturday comes when it happened. There was a picture of two of them with a speech bubbles, and it said, "You know, and it's good night from me, and it's good night from him." That was kind of <laughs> the kind of speech bubbles that they had on. Because remember, it was just the most balmy scenario uh, having a joint manager. Yeah, it, it, it worked for Alan Kirby and Steve Grit for a while, but. God, yeah, that's yeah. coming back as well, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, it was it was just sort of great. You know, it was a game that was um, talking about sort of Liverpool often have a search for a you know philosophy for want of a better word, and it, 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 that was one of those appointments that it was clear that they just didn't know what they were trying to do, and they just ah, oh, France have just won the World Cup, so here we. You know, here we go. Let's uh, let let's get the best French manager that's left on the shelf, which was um, terms, which was Julio at the time. That I guess was the obsession with it, the Claire Fontaine obsession that people banged exactly, on about for about yeah. four years. Sorry, Rob, go on. I was going to say, in terms of philosophical consistency, it was basically like making Rudy and Guardiola joint managers, wasn't it? It wasn't exactly uh, <laughs> it's not too common in the way they saw the game. But yeah, he, yeah. he always seemed like a fundamentally very decent bloke, Roy Evans. He just tried to do his best. You know, there was nothing about there was no, there was nothing about him you couldn't like really, apart from the fact that he kept losing. But it didn't. He didn't. If you actually no, look at their record, true, yeah, he's yeah. the only Liverpool manager, I think, Scott might correct me, who's had title challenges in consecutive seasons. Like they weren't a shambles at all. They were a bloody good side. He just 
fell slightly short. Yeah, um, and, you know, Anne played amazing football more often than not, which I think, yeah. which I think, um, you know, it's the, the the fact that we still talk about this side today isn't just because of the of the white <laughs> suits. Because if it was, if it, you know, that'd just be some sort of like sub Tim Lovejoy style banter. Oh, do you remember those suits? Ah, <laughs> uh, suits. But, but 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 there are things. You know, it's it, it, it's obviously you know we use them as this sort of a signifier for for the way they fell short. But it's the fact that there's some substance there in that team. And I think Rob's right. You know, Evans is. You know, he was he was a good coach. They were a good side. They they did. It was the fact that they constantly challenged. They didn't do this thing now that this habit Liverpool are in now of like having a few years off, and you yeah. know being fifth, sixth, seventh in the league, and then maybe having a couple of years where they're having a having a bit of a go, and maybe one league challenge every seven or eight years now. There might even be more, you know, fewer challenges than that. Just, I always think with this team, there are so many contradictions in terms of how you judge them and stuff. And another is that they had a diabolical record against Liverpool. I think they went um, Everton, rather. I think they went nine derbies without winning. And so you think, God, oh, they can't hand it. They're big game bottlers. They're, you know, good time Charlies. But then you think, well, hang on, they go to Old Trafford and St James is an outplay the best teams in the country. So it didn't quite fit. You know, to, to me, I think people think of Spice Boys as Fallon with Manaman and Redknapp. But Fallon McManaman never went to London, and Redknapp, by all accounts, was a model pro. You know, he showed. I mean, a bit like Beckham. And I just think it, nothing is quite as kind of they're put in a box. But actually, I think just think it's a bit more complicated. Than well, that. you could argue, even the defense, yeah. even the defense. So one last thing that people say was complete shit, and partly with good reason. But you actually look at the defensive record, and it's it's fine. It's not that it conceded fifty goals a season. I think it like low thirties, high forties. I suppose the problem would be would be mistakes in really big games, particularly from David James who was having that dodgy period. But, you know, they weren't a total joke. It's just, I don't know, I, I find it a really interesting subject, but also quite hard to get a handle on. I think they're a victim of they're a victim of the BBC Three highlights banter programme. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Because people when talk about yeah, football yeah. from the 90s, they go, oh, do you remember Liverpool? And there'll be some, like, second-rate fucking comedian on there going, oh, yeah, the fucking white suits <laughs> and stuff. And it'd be like, and that's all that people just... remember. And actually, I think when you look back, let's finish this point, I think, in a way... They are. They signalled the beginning of a new football. I know I'm a bit too, a bit too much hyperbole, but they signalled the beginning of a new football era. In that '96 was, as you said before, Rob, is the time when tactics were discovered. McManaman became this big <laughs> think piece thing all the time, didn't he? They played yeah, that system. Yeah. They played that continental tiki taka. You could argue, in a way, that they were the. Well, I am arguing in a way that they were the kind of trailblazers <laughs> for what came with Chelsea ten years later. And so on and so forth. I, really. I, used I, mean, to I might be sympathy. overstating it, but I do I used, think there's something in that. I used to have a lot of sympathy for them, but if you're saying they're to blame for football hipsters, then I think my views change. That's the one thing. The United didn't drink nearly as much as Liverpool, but but when they drunk, they drunk well. I mean, there are stories from that team that if they were applied to Liverpool, they would still be talking about today. So, for example, when United won the league in '96 at Middlesbrough, that night David May got so drunk he lost control of his bodily functions and he pissed all over a cab driver. Basically, like he, he, literally in the back of a cab, and he just he lost control. Like, and he basically he, he said he's in woke up the next morning in bed in his club suit and just had a message saying, Ferguson wants to speak to you. you can imagine the terror, <laughs> but just imagine, you know, imagine if Sophie Rodder could done that. So, I, I don't know, That's most what... of what they did, most of not all of them, most of what they did was just they were just being young, you know. And I think, but it is, sorry, it, go on, Scott. It, 
Well, no, I just wanted to pick up on on Rob's point of how the the Spice Boys are really hard to sort of nail down exactly who they were and what they stood for, because uh, and also mentioning tactics. Because I was about to say something very quippy about blaming it all on Neil Ruddock, <laughs> just everything on Neil Ruddock. But then it just brought to mind one of the like. Uh, things I've always had is I think one of Evans's big mistakes was not picking Ruddock in the cup final in 96. And while Ruddock was, was not a great player, he might've been the sort of player that would have like shaken, you know, Liverpool that day out of, you know, their torpor. He might've done something, even if it would have been just as naff as trying to put, um, Cantona's collar down again. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, it's I'm probably grasping at straws a bit with this, <laughs> but it, it it just sort of seemed it was another of those things where when a certain decision, you know, when a certain decision had to be made, it was just never quite right. They never quite played well in the big games. Uh, it just never quite fell into place for them. There's also what the fact you... that the, the narrative off. I mean, the Daily Mail said about them afterwards. You know, or they were more. In, I mean, literally said this. They were more interested in making inroads into the pages of glossy magazines rather than in the league table. But as we've said, that definitely wasn't the case because they challenged quite regularly. They had a couple of, you know, key uh, decisions or key selections or key games go against them. And it's interesting because then it, it comes back to that point about if you were successful, nobody would care. Because if you think about Beckham, they they loved Beckham for being in the press and having other things going on. But he was he won, didn't he? Apart from when he yeah, with England, then they hated him again. So weird that Spice Boys is given to Liverpool when mm. you know Beckham married one of them. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask you, Scott, where do you stand on Collymore, both in terms of how good he was, how good he could have been, how bad an influence he was? Because I know some people, like I think it's John Williams' book, Red Men, The History of Liverpool, where he says mm. Collymore's signing was the equivalent of a managerial suicide note. Um, <laughs> and again, it's I, also it's I one bet. of those things I find so... But then you get John Barnes, who says that... Um, Collymore could have been as good as Ronaldo, you know, pace, power, two-footed, could dribble. Um, I think he's another one who's so hard to pinpoint because at his best, he was just spectacular. I mean, just for a couple of years. I mean, that year he had a, a, a Nottingham Forest in, in the mm. Premier League, um, or the Premiership, or whatever it was called <laughs> then. Um, I mean, he was sensational, and he turned up and... I mean, everyone sort of talks about it, but I mean, they, they scored a lot of goals. Like, and he he linked up pretty well with with Fowler. They scored a lot of goals together, um, despite being. I mean, I think they kind of had a a sort of Cole Sheringham type relationship, didn't they? They didn't really yes didn't really get on off the pitch or anything like that. But it didn't stop them playing pretty well. I mean, again, it's one of those things, you know, do you, is, is scoring the winner in that, in that four three game is, is that worth a medal? Uh, uh, I don't know. It may, probably, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> I mean, but, but, but you know what I mean? It's kind of like, you know, there's not that many players that have like, um, you know, starring roles in, one of the most famous matches of all time. You know, there's not that many players who have a moment. Well, people um, will remember him a lot more than remember someone like Mark Atkins, won't they? Who has got a medal. Um, um, yeah, I would say. Robbie Slater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, you know, it's a tricky one. I mean, I've been banging this drum for like years and years. I remember doing a Joy Six on The Guardian um, about players who who never won anything. And, you know, you in 
different types of players like Matt Letizia, Tom Finney, and you know, saying you will be remembered if you're good enough. You don't have to. Um, you don't have to have you know this amazing CV. Um, but the but the abuse I got like below <laughs> the line. I mean, oh, you, you know, surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's I your favorite? What's your favorite? What's that quote you often use, Robert, from Danny Blanchfire? Is it? It's, it's not about winning. It's about glory, sort of thing. Oh, I don't know. Is it Danny Blanchfire? Um, yeah. Well, Scott. It's definitely one of your books, Rob. Come on, why don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, oh, the great... about the not putting the other bloke to sleep or other thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something about that. It's about football. It's not just about winning. It's about there's, there's glory and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. There's something in that. Yes. At the end of your career, you probably want a medal. But then again, in 30 years' time, people will remember that moment, not the person who played right back in 1995. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, Blanchflower. I think there was another, um, I, I can't remember the exact quote word for word, but it was the double season um, in 61. And Spurs had rattled in about 90 goals um, before Christmas. And, and then kind of the second half of the season was almost a bit of an anti-climax and the cup final was rubbish even though they won it and afterwards he said he couldn't be bothered celebrating in the cup final because it wasn't a good game Spurs knew they were going to win and half of Wembley was full of people who didn't support either Spurs or Leicester so he didn't want to like look at them <laughs> it was but you know I, th- I think he was really into the fact that um, it wasn't really to do with the medal at all. It was, it was, it was producing something uh, memorable, uh, you know, producing some, uh, producing uh, a work of art. To be vaguely pretentious for a so minute. So, in conclusion, <laughs> Scott Murray thinks that the Spice Boys were better than anybody who won medals. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> have no. your, have your say on. <laughs> yeah, uh, let us know what you think <laughs> about that below the line, all you reasonable people. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, so uh, a complex period for both football and for Liverpool Football Club, I think is it's fairly safe to say we're saying about that. Yeah. Um, and can we make one yeah, last, one one last, last point? point. They were subject to temptations that no footballers had ever been subject to because society had changed so much in terms of football and celebrity. It was also in the middle of Cool Britannia and all that. Like that, they were the other teams didn't get the same temptation. It was for the first time reason. they got really, really, really big money as well. And yeah, became part exactly. of pop culture. Footballers had never really had that before, had they? And it's easy for us to sit and sort of people to sit and say, oh, yeah, you should go home on a Saturday night and just have a couple of Gatorades. I mean, come on. It was the <laughs> mid-90s. But anyway, there were times when it could have rained in, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. So there you I go. Shut up now. The Spice Boys. That was our little discussion about it. Let us know what you think, I suppose. Aren't Ness and Dorma Pod? Are we right? Are we, you know, I think you're definitely going to think that I've overstated the era defining thing, and that's fair enough. <laughs> um, we're going to finish on just remembering between us some of our sort of memorable Christmas period games, because as we record this, it is Christmas next week. Um, Rob, do you want to start us off? Yeah, just a, a, a quick um, one uh, from New Year's Day 89, Man United 3, Liverpool 1. Um, it was on, uh, I think it was on live TV, but it was it was a memorable game because Liverpool were the best team that had in England that had been for God knows how long. United were really struggling under Ferguson. They had a load of injuries and played a load of kids. Uh, Mark Robbins, I think, came on. Lee Sharp, Lee Martin, Russell Beardsmore. And they battered Liverpool and then went one down. Barnes scored after about 70 minutes. And you thought, oh, geez, here we go. And then the next, I think, seven minutes, just scored three goals. Beardsmore made one with an amazing run for McClare. Hughes scored, and then Beardmore scored another, scored a lovely goal himself. It was just, the action was astonishing that day. And it was just that lovely 
brief period around the time when Ferguson was really struggling for about six weeks, a load of kids played. And it was just like United in particular, I think that's so important. It was a game at QPR, a cup game. And it was only a two all draw, but people still talk about it because I think we're like eight or nine in the match day squad. Maybe not quite that many, but anyway. Um, it was just a great period. And I think it bought Ferguson a bit of time. Um, I think his record against Liverpool, we said this when we did the episode on Fergie's first four years, that's what kind mm. of kept him patient a bit longer, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And of all the wins over Liverpool they had in the 80s, because of course Atkinson had a good record as well, that's right up there. Just to see, like, any football fan loves it, but I think it is particularly important, given United's identity, to see a team of kids batter a team who are superior to everyone in England. Yeah, it just doesn't get much better any New Year's Day. Uh, and I think after that, Liverpool didn't lose again until the um, Arsenal, the Michael Thomas game, I think. One yeah. weird footnote with that is United actually played the next day and they got beaten away at Middlesbrough. So they had two league games in 24 hours, which obviously wouldn't happen now. God. Um, but we yeah, definitely have to do an episode on great fixture pileups because there's so many of them from, from that yeah, period, get, isn't there? God, there are, yeah. But yeah, that would be my favourite, I think. Did the great Ralph Milne play in that game? He did, and he played quite well, actually. He was having a good little spell around there. Oh, and there's a, there's a nice um, story in one of Ferguson's books where he said that afterwards he shook hands with the Liverpool team, the, the management team, <laughs> and Roy Moran said, the best team lost. And trust me, they didn't. They were absolute sort <laughs> But I just, I love that level of one-eyedness <laughs> unashamedly. <laughs> Every team needs someone like him. For, well, from, <laughs> from one New Year's Day game that went well for United in 1989 to a New Year's Day game that didn't quite go so well for United in 1992, 1st of January, uh, which is the one that always sticks out in my memory when people talk about festive period games, which was United won QPR 4, which was live on the big match. I remember I was at my nan's house, I was at my nan and granddad's house on New Year's Day watching it because I'd have been too young to be out at that point. And I was sat in, and probably my mum was on Gove or something. So I was sat watching this... <laughs> And my uncle's a United fan. And um and yeah, and, and I remember laughing a lot as as somebody who doesn't like United, obviously. I remember just being very, very, very funny to my then fifteen year old eyes and brain that this was going on. But I mean it's 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 the truth of it, of course, is well it is it the truth of it that they were that United were completely and utterly pissed the night before. <laughs> I, I I don't know whether that's true. We we should stress that there's no evidence. No evidence <laughs> of that. Okay. But what, but what we what we should know in the in the as a point of interest is that the day before was Sir Alex Ferguson's fiftieth birthday. Um, <laughs> a completely coincidental development. I don't know. There have always been rumours that they were. Whether that's true, I don't know. Because it was an evening game, so I think it was like five o'clock or something. So I, I don't know. But I, it was just surreal, wasn't it? I think it was two 0 really early. It was. And yeah, the ending early. was was Bumpy really pitch. shambolic, wasn't it? The defending was, was which, hilarious. If you watch it again now, yeah. You might argue they defended like drunk men, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, Dennis Bailey, of course, scored that hat-trick, which is just it's one of the great stories, really. And it, it's hard to remember, certainly in the 90s, a, a, a game that made you just like jaw drop quite so far. <laughs> even when, you know, even when they lost 6-3 at Southampton and stuff, it's different when it's at home as well. And also they've been in great form. They just walloped Oldham 6-3. They seem to be cruising to the, not cruising to the title, but they seem to be in control of the title race. Just because I bring up the loss against QPR, there's no need to be like that. You, know? you didn't have to mention that game. But and yeah, actually, it's... two years later over Christmas, they won 5-2 old. Yeah, know, and... yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. It's like a, just... a little Christmas present for you every every few years, yeah. The only thing is QPR then went and walloped Leeds 4-1 in about March, I think, at QPR, which seemed to have given United the title, but of course it didn't. But yeah, it's just one of the great 
iconic games of that kind of era. And of course, watching it again, you remember that Ian Holloway, Ian Holloway was playing for QPR in that game as well. Yeah, well, quite a good side. Andy Sinton scored, didn't he? Ian Holloway rattled the bar, Wilkins didn't he? Or... Would, Wilkins would have been playing, wouldn't he? Oh, I'd have to go back and have a look, but yeah, he could have been right at the last knock-ins, yeah. Yeah. So there you go, yeah, so QPR for United 1 to give some United balance. And, and Scott, what's your favourite, well, not memory, but thing you want to talk about from, <laughs> because I don't think you remember this one, but... Uh... No, no, well, I, I mean, I just think, you know, festive matches, the top flight, we're kind of contractually obliged to mention the Boxing Day 1963, <laughs> when there were... All the, all these ludicrous results like Fulham ten, Ipswich one, Burnley six, Man U one, uh, Blackburn one eight two at West Ham. But the game I was going to go for was uh, out of this lot is West Brom four, Spurs four, because this was kind of the last year of Bill Nicholson's. The Bill Nicholson's great side was you know seriously looking to win the title. They they didn't manage it, and one of the reasons why was because they'd. They blew a two-goal lead in this match, but I think it's but West Brom getting back into this game and getting a four-all draw is is quite the achievement because they've been because uh, they've been on strike and the <laughs> and the reason that they'd been on on strike is because their manager um, Jimmy Hagen, who was like you know an old-school guy um, who was was making them just do lap after lap after lap in training. <laughs> And they were getting really bored of it, going, "Hey, you're treating us like kids. Can't we play with the football?" And um, no, and, get wrong. <laughs> and, and, and then eventually, like it all really kicked off when it was minus five one day, and Hagen wouldn't let them wear long long trousers. <laughs> <laughs> so they so they all went on strike for for a week. And this was like plastered all over the papers. And it was kind of an irony because the ba- like West Brom are called the Baggies. Because they were the last, like the last club, to swap their long Victorian breeches for like short oh, shorts. Is that true? I didn't know that. Um, so yeah, so it was it, it was it was kind of a good good four all draw, and the, and the nice sort of you know the last bit of Christmas cheer in this story <laughs> was that was that was despite being on strike, all of the players went up to the Hawthorns to demand their Christmas bonus. And a very thin-lipped, seething Hagen was handing out his <laughs> shopping vouchers for like a local, you know, four, four guineas to spend at your local department store. It's, it's, you know, festive steam pumped from his lungs. <laughs> but remember, yeah, for all. Oh, that's a great story. I remember, um, remember reading about the Dynamo Kiev coach in the in the Soviet period in the thirties, and he got sacked. Because it was alleged that his training methods were too bourgeois, <laughs> and I've often I've often wondered what oh bourgeois training methods were, and I think it would probably be allowing them to wear long trousers in the cold. That would probably, <laughs> that would probably be deemed as bourgeois, wouldn't it? Yeah, uh, maybe a little brandy before before the <laughs> you with your bourgeois. T- Mate, fair, imagine what they think about football now. If they've got a problem with bourgeois, because it's incredibly <laughs> bourgeois now, isn't it? Well, ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our little festive trip around some games and the end of this episode, actually. Thank you very much, Rob, for your time as Cheers. always. And thank you very much, Scott, for your invaluable input on the Spice Boys. Thanks for having me. Everybody has a lovely Christmas. There is still time to buy Scott's book. I'll remind you of that again, the title, <laughs> hey. The Story of the First Division. And um, we will see you all uh, in a few weeks in the new year when we have another 
episode teed up. Thanks very much, everybody, and goodbye.